Hello and welcome to Reflections on the Scriptures podcast. My name is Murray Shanks. You know, one of the great things about pastoral ministry for me has been the discovery of so many new and inventive reasons for not coming to church. Let me give you some memorable examples. My parents always used to make me go every week, so that's why I make sure I don't come every week. Because mum and dad would want me to go every week, to church that is. That's why I don't come to church regularly to get back at mum and dad for making me go to church when I was a kid. Yes, that's right, mum did pass away many years ago, but I'm sticking to my principles on this. Or, I don't come to church because there are hypocrites in church. I always think that excuse is a little bit like saying, I'm not going on a diet because there are fat people on diets, you know. Or, it's the only day I get to sleep in. That says a lot about a person's priorities, doesn't it? Wayne Cadiro says, we need to learn to sleep in on the front side. In other words, go to bed earlier. These days, I will rarely argue with people if they're making excuses about not coming to church. These days, I tend to keep a pretty straight face and simply say, okay, catch up with you soon. I then go home and pray that person will one day find the one really good reason for going to church, God. The thing is, many people do decide to worship God. Week after week, you turn up to your church with a whole lot of other people of varying ages and from a whole host of different backgrounds with all sorts of life stories to tell. But you choose to go there, to gather there, whether it be a a nice sunny day or pouring rain. And if I asked you, why do you go to church? Your answer would probably be very simply to worship God. Worship is one of the important things we do in a life of discipleship. During the last couple of weeks, I've begun a series in the book of Psalms. We're focusing on the 15 Psalms, which have become known as the Psalms of Ascent. These Psalms became known in this simple way because they were sung by pilgrims, faithful Hebrews who made the journey from wherever they lived in Israel up the mountains to Jerusalem three times every year to sacrifice, to worship, and to pray to their God. These songs, the Psalms, teach us about life. They teach us about how to have a good life. You know, one of the big questions for humanity through the ages has been, who gets the good life? How do I have a good life? What is the best way to live? These 15 Psalms largely encapsulate the teaching of the Scriptures on these big questions of life. Psalm 122 is the song of a person who decides to go to church and worship God. It's like a snapshot of this worldwide phenomenon of worship, which is common to all Christians, and it has much to teach us about worship. Psalm 122 is the third in the sequence of Psalms, the Psalms of Ascent. The first Psalm, Psalm 120, you you may remember, calls us to repentance. It's the discordant, frustrated cry of someone who is just sick of the lies and deceptions of the world, and they want out. They want out and they want to turn to the only viable option, God. Psalm 121, the second in this series, reminds us that the Lord himself guards you every step of the way. Whilst we know that hardship and trial will come our way, we can rest in the truth that our God protects us from all evil. Nothing can come between you and God. Nothing can dilute his grace in you, and nothing can divert his purposes for you. 
So let's open the word of God together. Let's turn together to Psalm 122. Verse 1 says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And now we are standing here inside your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a well-built city to knit together as a single unit. All the people of Israel, the Lord's people, make their pilgrimage here. They come to give thanks to the name of the Lord as the law requires. Here stands the thrones where judgment is given, the thrones of the dynasty of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May all who love this city prosper. O Jerusalem, may there be peace within your walls and prosperity in your palaces. For the sake of my family and friends, I will say, peace be with you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek what is best for you, O Jerusalem. The psalmist's very first line, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. The psalmist is glad to make the journey up the mountains to worship the Lord. But worship, the decision to come to church to worship, to give up an hour or two of your Sunday is completely voluntary. No one can make you go to worship. Now I realise that there's a fairly small percentage of people who come to church against their will. Children, teenagers who come simply because mum and dad make them. But this really only lasts for a few years. For the vast majority of people, especially today, worship is a choice. And it's a choice that most of us make, believe it or not. I was reading recently that in America, there are more people at Christian worship on any given Sunday than there are at all the football games or are on all the golf courses or fishing or just off bushwalking. In America, people go to church. They worship God more than anything else. That would not be true in Australia. On any given Sunday, less than 10% of people are in church. But that doesn't mean they aren't worshipping. Go to any sporting event and you'll see thousands of worshippers. Top sports men and women are idolised by their fan. Yes, it's, it's where we get the word idol. They are worshipped by their adoring fans. Go to a big rock concert and you'll see thousands of people worshipping once again. Worship is the most natural thing for us human beings. We don't need to be coerced into worship. We do it naturally. We seem to need to do it. So when we hear the psalmist say, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. This isn't the phony enthusiasms of someone trying to drum up business. This is typical of what we see from Christians all over the world. This is what we see from people everywhere, a longing, a need to regularly worship. This isn't some ideal that we should aspire to. It is simply stating what people everywhere do. So the question is, why do we do it? Why do we worship? What is it about building regular worship into our lifestyle rhythms that is so important for the disciple of Jesus? The thing is, down through the ages, if you study church history, you'll discover that wherever you find a Christian community, you'll also find a worshipping community. Why is worship so important for the disciple. Well, Eugene Peterson, in his excellent little book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, a book which has significantly influenced this message and indeed this whole series, says there are three core reasons why we worship. And these three reasons are singled out in this psalm, Psalm 122. Firstly, he says worship gives us a workable structure for life. Secondly, 
Worship nurtures our need to be in relationship with God. And finally, worship centres our attentions on the decisions of God. So let's look at each of these in a little more detail. Verse 3 of this psalm says, Jerusalem is a well-built city, knit together as a single unit. All the people of Israel, the Lord's people, make their pilgrimage here. Jerusalem, for a Hebrew, wasn't just the capital city. That was merely incidental. It wasn't just the geographical centre of the country. That's just where it happened to be. It wasn't just the political seat of authority. That was secondary to its real meaning in the life of the Hebrews. Jerusalem was the place to worship. When you thought about worship, you thought about Jerusalem. When you thought about going to Jerusalem, you thought about going to worship. That's why even today, thousands of years later, the Jews hang on to Jerusalem like nowhere else. You see, nowhere else will do. Jerusalem is where you go to worship. As I said a number of times, the great worship festivals to to which everyone came at least three times a year were held in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, everything that God said was remembered and celebrated. For the Hebrews, entering Jerusalem meant encountering the great foundational realities of life. God created you. God redeemed you. God provides for you. In Jerusalem, you saw played out in ritual and you heard proclaimed in preaching the story of God revealing himself to humanity. You heard the history of the Jews You heard about how a person's sins could be forgiven and about how you could enter into relationship with the living God. You heard about how your life could have purpose, real purpose. In Jerusalem, all of the scattered fragments of a person's experience, all of those little bits bits and pieces of truth, all of the little feelings and insights were put together into a single integrated whole. All of the experiences of life were made sense of through the act of worship. Life is full of experiences which don't make sense to us. People everywhere who never go to church, never worship God, have experiences that seem to transcend their everyday life. Remember, God inhabits his universe like we inhabit our body. So of course people keep bumping into God. He's everywhere whether we like it or not. And because he's everywhere, people everywhere are having religious experiences. And they'll tell you about them if you let them. Their problem is they just can't make sense of what is happening in those moments. Let me give you some examples of what I'm talking about. You're sitting out in the surf with some mates. The sun's rising and a school of tailor starts chopping into the bait fish all around you. For a few seconds, you... You can't really believe that you are in the midst of all this. Wild, untamed life is surging all around you. And for just a brief moment, you you have this sense that there is something greater than you, something beyond your world, beyond your understanding. For a moment, you glimpse the divine, but then it's gone because you can't make sense of it. Your wife gives birth to your first child. There's been so much screaming, pain, suffering, anxiety, so much tension, so much angst. And then all of a sudden, this little life is snuggling into your wife's breast and everything 
is going to be just fine. For a moment, just for a moment, you glimpse the divine. God seems to be there. But then the moment is gone because you can't make sense of it. Life is full of those kinds of moments. Worship makes sense of all those moments. This is what the psalmist is saying. In Jerusalem, in worship, all of the scattered fragments of a person's experience are brought into the single integrated whole. I noticed in the last, the latest version of the, um, the New Living Translation, they've changed a couple of the words. Verse 3 now says, Jerusalem is a well-built city. Its seamless walls cannot be breached. Jerusalem was well-built and it has become, if you like, an architectural metaphor for the role of worship in the life of the disciple. All of the stones fit well. There is a, a harmony in the way they are put together. There's no loose stones, no leftover bits and pieces in the wall or in the towers. Jerusalem was skillfully built, a unity with itself. And what was true architecturally is also true socially as well. You see, the next verse says that all the tribes of Israel, the Lord's people, make their pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship. In worship, unlike at any other time, all the tribes, all the 12 tribes of Israel, cease to be separate entities and they become one people in worship of their God. It's exactly the same with us today, isn't it? I said uh, before about how we all come from such different backgrounds and we all have some such different life experiences. We all have differing levels of intelligence and wealth and employment. There may even be rivalries and conflict between us, but in worship, we are gathered together as one. The conflicts and the rivalries, the, the differences out there almost pale into insignificance as the unity of what God is doing here amongst us is demonstrated in the act of worship. Do you know, one of the, the things that I just love about preaching, and I realise that most of you probably won't have the chance to experience this, when someone preaches from the Word of God and they proclaim a truth about Christian experience, it's like this resonance happens between what the preacher is saying and your life experience, your experience of God. It's, it's actually really hard for me to describe. Around the room there is a, a whole heap of nodding and a certain feeling in the room. I think that feeling is this sense of unity which the, the psalmist refers. Something happens in corporate worship. And remember, when I'm speaking about worship, I mean everything that we do here together, not just singing, everything that we do. Praying together, fellowshipping together, singing together, sitting under the word of God together, all of that, serving together, all of that binds us together and makes sense of the countless experience we each have during our week as individuals. Today, when someone's life seems to be a, a bit of a mess, when there are too many things happening, when the stuff of life seems to be overwhelming, we often say something to them like, why don't you just get away for a while and get your head around all of this stuff that's happening to you? And if they do that, if they get away for a while, they will often return and say, I'm getting it together again. 
life is starting to make sense. I can see how things fit. I can see where my real priorities lie. I can see which things I need to worry about and which things I can let go of. This is why disciples, followers of Jesus, are called to worship together. It helps us get it together again, to make sense of life and to show us what to worry about and what to let go of. Okay, so that's the first reason. Worship gives us a workable structure for life. The second lesson is that worship nurtures our need to be in relationship with God. And more than that, we are commanded to praise God simply because it's the only honest, right and proper response to all that God is and has done. Let me unpack that for you. For a moment, think about your life. Think about all that God has done in your life. Think about even the very base level blessings of God in your life. Think about clean air, clean water, good healthy food. For for many, many people, access to first world medicine, access to electricity. Then start thinking about all of the other blessings that he pours out upon us hour after hour, day after day. And you'll discover that the only honest, right and proper response to all God is and all he has done in your life is worship. That's why when we worship God, we feel so centred, we feel so balanced, so right. At the very core of every human life is the need to be in relationship with God. Many people choose not to be in relationship with God, but that doesn't negate the need. And that's why when we don't worship the living God, we ultimately end up worshipping something else because the need is still there. Now, the need may be there, but very often we don't feel like worshipping. And so we say something like, I didn't come to church to worship today because I just didn't feel like worshipping and I knew it would be hypocritical for me to worship with that feeling inside of me and I really don't want to be hypocritical. So I didn't come to worship Feelings, let me tell you, can be lies. Feelings can be very helpful in so many areas. But a very important lesson to learn is that when it comes to matters of faith, feelings are very unreliable things. I can tell you with complete honesty, if I only ever preached from the Word of God when I felt good about it, I would probably never preach again. You ask my wife how I often feel before I preach. I never, ever feel like fasting. Not that I regularly fast. I just want to point that out so you don't become overly impressed. But when I do fast, I don't ever feel like it. I very rarely feel like journaling. Going to visit someone who is critically ever ill, someone who's dying, never feels great. But it's a good thing to do. Anyone who takes seriously the ministry of prayer will tell you that often you just need to pray, even though it's the last thing you feel like doing. You know, we live in what Hubert Hendon calls the age of sensation. We've somehow come to the point where we believe that if we don't feel something, then it can't be real, it can't be authentic. The wisdom that comes from God, the teaching of Scripture, is that we can 
act ourselves into a new way of feeling far more readily than we can feel our way into a new way of acting or behaving. To put it simply, don't rely on your feelings. Do what God commands you to do and good feelings will follow. You know, as I said earlier, one of the big questions for humanity has always been, who gets the good life? Part of the answer to that question is found in God's command to worship him, despite our feelings. Verse 4 of our psalm says, They come to give thanks to the name of the Lord as the law requires. They made the long, arduous journey up to Jerusalem, the home of worship, because the law required it. Which law? The law given to Moses on Mount Sinai by Yahweh himself. Do you hear what I just said? God commands his people to worship him. Firstly, because it's the only right and proper response to all he is and has done. And secondly, it's so jolly good for us to worship God. And God always wants what's best for his children. Finally, the third reason why disciples and pilgrims should worship is because it ensures our attention is centred on the decisions of God. Have a look at verse 5. Have a careful think about this. Verse 5 says, Here stands the thrones where judgment is given, the thrones of the dynasty of David. The thrones of the dynasty of David ultimately end where? Remember, these words were written 500 years before the birth of Christ. The thrones of the dynasty of David ultimately end where? They end in Jesus. He is the end of the line, as it were. He is the final king of kings, the son of David, the son of God, who will rule forever. In the end, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That's the day of judgment. I don't think that this is just speaking about the day of judgment, though, because the writer the writer actually says, here stands the thrones where judgment is given. The whole context of this psalm revolves around worship and specifically the city of Jerusalem as a metaphor for God's people gathering to worship. So it has to involve worship. Jesus himself promised that he would send his Holy Spirit to guide us into all righteousness. In other words, the Holy Spirit would bring judgment on us, would convict us of sin and show us how to live. So when we gather together to worship God, when we do all of those things together that I just mentioned a moment ago, when we pray together, when we fellowship together, when we sing together, when we give together, when we sit under the word of God together, and when we respond to that word together, the Holy Spirit gathers there with us. We feel his presence all the time, don't we? And even if we don't feel his presence, he's there. In worship, the Holy Spirit shows us that some of our attitudes, some of the things we've said or done during the week, or even some of the things we haven't done during the week, but we should have, are just plain sinful and wrong. You see, judgment isn't a word about things, describing them. Judgment is a word that does things. If you go to court to be sentenced, the magistrate's judgment is something that happens to you because of something you've done. It doesn't just describe your behaviour. Exactly the same thing happens when we gather to, together to worship. This is what the psalmist is getting at. Worship brings judgment upon us. It convicts us of sin. It shows us how to live 
during the following week. I think this is why we are commanded to worship regularly. This is why we need to worship together regularly. It's part of learning how to be a disciple of Jesus. God teaches us through corporate worship. Isn't that neat? Worship, even for those who are most faithful at it, takes up a tiny percentage of a person's life, an hour or so a week. So the question is, does it make any difference to the rest of the week? It really does. And this is what the psalmist says. Verse 6, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May all who love this city prosper. O Jerusalem, may there be peace within your walls and prosperity in your palaces. For the sake of my family and friends, I will say, peace be with you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek what is best for you, O Jerusalem. Eugene Peterson says that two very important Hebrew words, shalom and shalvah, play on the sounds of Jerusalem, or as the Hebrew might say it, Yerushalem. Yerushalem, the place of worship. In the place of worship, the disciple and the pilgrim find shalom and shalvah. Now, shalom is translated in English as peace. But shalom is one of the richest words in the Bible. It's been said that trying to understand shalom by looking at it up in the dictionary is like trying to define a person by his or her tax file number. Peterson writes, Shalom gathers together all the aspects of wholeness that result from God's will being completed in us. It is the work of God that when complete, releases streams of living water in us that overflow to everyone around us. Shalom, the peace of God, rests in you, pulsating with eternal life. So just hold that thought for a moment. Shalva, the other word which plays on the sound of Yerushalem, means prosperity. And it has absolutely nothing to do with having lots of money or material things. The root meaning for shalva, prosperity, is actually leisure the relaxed life of one who knows that everything is all right because God is over us, with us, and for us in Christ Jesus. Shalom and shalva, peace and prosperity, is the fruit of worship for the disciple and the pilgrim. So a little recap of what we've learnt from this wonderful psalm. Number one, worship gives us a, a workable structure for life. Secondly, worship nurtures our need to be in relationship with God. Thirdly, worship judges us and then teaches us how to live. And finally, worship brings peace and prosperity into our lives. Amen.